Welcome to The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. In for Orion Samuelson, I'm Steve Alexander. Our buddy Max Armstrong will be along in a few minutes as well. It was another week of mixed messages from the White House about the trade war with China, and that impacted the markets. Wednesday, the president's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, said that the administration has not engaged the Chinese in intense talks lately. The next day, the president said that trade discussions are moving along nicely. On Friday, a report from Bloomberg, citing four people familiar with the situation, said the president had asked key members of the cabinet to prepare a draft trade agreement with China. Then Larry Kudlow comes back again and contradicted the president, saying no draft trade agreement was in the works and we are not on the cusp of a deal, that whatever talks are going on are normal and routine. Well, two hours later on Friday, the president told White House reporters that he will be meeting with the Chinese president at the G20 meeting in Argentina, and he thinks there will be a deal. Investors are, you could say, skeptical about the recent change in rhetoric, suggesting it could be heavy on politics and short on policy. Howard Ward of Gameco Investors says, In my opinion, with all due respect to the president, he's talking up the stock market before the midterm elections. There have been no discussions taking place between China and the United States. There will be no deal next month, the opinion of Howard Ward. Meanwhile, traders were also showing once again that what's good for Main Street is not necessarily good for Wall Street. The October jobs report surprised. It was much better than expected. It also showed an increase in wages, above 3% on an annual basis for the first time since the recovery began in the Obama presidency. But that made traders worry about inflation and the possibility that the Fed may continue to increase interest rates to keep inflation under control. So Wall Street ended lower on Friday, but for the week, again, another volatile week, lots of ups and downs. The three major indices were above water. For the week, the Dow was up 2.3%, the S&P 500 was up 2.4%, and the Nasdaq was up 1.6% for the week. The uncertainty about the trade situation with China, the mixed messages coming from the White House, has traders of agricultural products at full attention as well. And our friend Max Armstrong will be along with an interview about the agricultural markets after this. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. Welcome back to The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. I'm Steve Alexander, in for Orion Samuelson. And oh boy, when it comes to the ag markets, there is lots to talk about. From the USDA report coming out next Thursday to China to Brazil, and on and on we go with Max Armstrong and his special guest. Joe Camp from AgriVisor joining us this weekend to talk about the landscape there just ahead of a November crop report. Coming up on Thursday, USDA will be out with some new numbers. Are you expecting any surprises or do you think USDA is going to wait until January to make any significant changes in crop production numbers? With these reports, it's almost a surprise if you don't have one or two surprises, right? We're always coming into these and the recent several uh, 
two or three years being an example of just how surprised we can be coming into these reports and having um, our estimates, the sort of trade average guess, uh, the range of estimates, however you want to view it, just be so off from where the USDA is, um, most often on yield. And that's, of course, the important uh, set of numbers here for our next uh, November report. We'll get our next update from the USDA. They, of course, pull in field samples. They have a good look at uh, the crop that's already harvested and also um, uh, continue their survey of farmers across the country. And so on this report, after we've had, you know, so much of harvest already behind us, about uh, 70% of the corn crop nationally, 80% of the soybeans out at this point, we're going to have a a really good handle on where yields are. And they are likely to change. Uh, Talking with, of course, uh, you know well, Dale Durkholz, our senior market analyst, uh, your listeners would be familiar with him as well, telling me a little bit about his yield model, his analysis, thinking that uh, corn yield can maybe drop by even up to another uh, one bushel per acre. Of course, very good averages enjoyed in uh, Illinois and East, but some issues out in the Western Corn Belt we've got to reconcile. So we can see a reduction on corn yield soybean. Anybody's bet, but a, you know, a, a half a bushel an acre uh, above or below 53, still a record uh, set of uh, corn and soybean yields for 2018. Is it Dale's opinion that that soy or that corn yield coming down would be because of field losses? That's D- difficult harvest. Right, that's partly the case. A part of it is uh, that we we did feel the USDA came into the season a little bit high on their expectations for namely uh, Minnesota and Iowa. Uh, but yes, we can have some field loss here. That may also be uh, impacting to come the harvested acreage number. So all in all, we could approach this next report knowing very well that we've got record yields, very big crops, um, but can we see them shrink just a little bit from here into the uh, final yield estimate in January? Uh, yes, we believe that could be a scenario. Now, there are more beans in the field yet than we generally see for the November crop survey. But I guess, you know, you wiggle that yield around on beans, it doesn't matter as much as a yield change in corn, Correct. That's right. If you multiply a you know a smaller number by the acreage uh, soybean yield relative to corn, it'll be a less of an impact here. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know it's more variable. We're just uh, still, as of yet, less certain about soybean yield uh, than we are for corn. And so, uh, the sort of percentage of a of a swing one way or the other can be bigger uh, than it can be for corn. On the same, uh, uh, so on the same token, you can set yourself up for. Me- potentially a bigger surprise come uh, November 8th when we look at that soybean number. Uh, so yeah, we'll be we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, we talk about these record yields, these, these bumper crops, but we know that to be uh, the sort of average case, the national average. It's, it's amazing how big of a crops we'll bring in this year, again, on average, knowing some of the issues we've had. If we talk about that real wet weather in the western Corn Belt, the far uh, southeastern Corn Belt, of course, uh, with the the extra water brought in by uh, several hurricanes this season, there's a lot of sort of issues that we've dealt with to come to this point, which is still a record crop year. And while it's not in the major producing 
areas for soybeans, there's still a lot of beans out of the field, down in the Carolinas. I mean, it, and that's generally the case. Uh, they're still standing out there where, well, if they're still standing, you know, along the, the coast there, they really got pounded, uh, certainly with the, the rains from Hurricane Florence. But let me come back to the, the balance sheet just a little bit. A yield reduction in corn has some significance, does it not, simply because we're a little bit tighter there? Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, we know that not just in the U.S., but around the world, if we're looking at corn, uh, we have stocks in the hands of the major exporters uh, on the way down. And this has been a trend now that's be- been beginning since the previous season. And we're starting to see global inventories, uh, global carryout projections really start to slim up in a way that brings us down to historically tight levels uh, from a stocks-to-use ratio perspective. And when we look at that relative to what we know about price, then there is a case to suggest that, um, yeah, we might uh, be currently undervaluing uh, corn prices, particularly if we have the outlook for uh, U.S. stocks to decline. Just deviating just a moment, because this popped into my mind, the election in Brazil last weekend. They've got a new president down there, and I I, I see kind of a varied reaction to how this guy might treat agriculture. He's said to be a big fan of ethanol, yet it seems like he's rattling the saber a little bit, too, with the the, the Chinese. Have you looked at it closely enough, Joe, to give some analysis of uh, what that might mean in the whole scheme of things, and especially since they're a major competitor of ours? Uh, There was some commentary, for example, he's, he's of a mind to invest in infrastructure, and that's been kind of the Achilles heel down there. Yeah, Max, you may have had the two good points there on uh, the maybe uh, expected impact from the new presidential election in Brazil. Bolsonaro, uh, his name coming in, being the right-wing candidate and replacing uh, a liberal party that had been in power for more than a decade in Brazil. Uh, we talked first about ethanol, a new program called uh, BioRenovo, and that should be akin uh, something similar to our RFS policy here in the United States, so the Brazilians will look to set uh, blending mandates for renewable fuels, uh, and that'll include ethanol. Uh, We'll uh, keep that in mind when we uh, know that Brazil is such a huge customer of U.S. ethanol exports. How will that uh, impact our market going forward? And then the other side of it is the stance on China. Uh, President Bolsonaro, incoming uh, into Brazil, has said, you know, China, uh, they can buy in Brazil, but we don't want them to buy Brazil. And so uh, they'll continue to have a strong relationship, we believe, with the Chinese, work together on projects like infrastructure that will help Brazilian farmers in the interior bring grain to ports so that they can more efficiently ship that grain to China. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, Brazil could potentially, and uh, incoming President Bolsonaro could potentially be a supporter of the U.S. and and line up, along with other countries, uh, to stand up against China and uh, fight what our perceived and alleged to be some of these trade improprieties. How do you analyze the trade scene right now? I mean, are we making any progress? What have you heard from trade negotiations? Is there any progress at all with the Chinese? Anything to lead us to believe that somewhere not too far down the road, we might see these tariffs pulled off and open trade flowing once more? If we're making progress uh, with the Chinese, it's because we have already made progress with other countries. If we talk about um, the South Korean trade deal, uh, the new NAFTA framework with Canada and Mexico, what we're doing 
doing is, uh, again, aligning countries to stand behind us uh, to say we are going to bring to China a unified front uh, to air our grievances that uh, aren't just particular to the U.S., but to the rest of the world with, you know, again, those allegations of intellectual property theft, um, of, of really controlled investments, of, of over-subsidy uh, relative to WTO guidelines. Uh, we need uh, a coalition. Uh, we can't go it alone. And so to work on these other trade deals, again, progress already on South Korea, on NAFTA, uh, talks uh, starting up with Japan and with the European Union as well, that's a good thing. The next uh, real telling, I think, influence will be the outcome of the midterm elections. Does President Trump have support from uh, the continuation of a Republican-controlled Congress? If not, if... um if the Republicans, for example, lose the House of Representatives, does that splinter somewhat the stance of President Trump and strengthen that of President Xi in China? At the end of November, President Trump and President Xi will meet at the G20 summit. Uh, that'll be our next sort of indication on where we can go from here. I've got some optimism, but um, uh, nothing uh, tells me that we're uh, due for a, a real a step forward anytime soon, at least not until we get past the midterms next week and uh, also uh, pass this first meeting between the presidents. Well, thinking about the prices and the potential for market impact, don't we usually see some price movement along about the beginning of December, somewhere along in there? Can we expect that this year? Yeah, first of all, we're looking at uh, the potential for our seasonal lows to have been in place. Normally, uh, they come at the very beginning of October, and there's uh, our suggestions that uh, that's been the case for us again this season. Now, going forward, we put this crop away. The farmer uh, is is not as uh, busy of a seller. We don't have the same hedge pressure on the market. We still need to use the corn. We've got uh, record usage from uh, domestic ethanol and feed sectors, uh, soybean crush. Uh, of course, we know the issues with exports, but still some very positive signs uh, on that front. We still need to use the grain, and so we transition our focus towards how and how much we will use, and there are positive signs for that. And then we also turn our focus towards South American production. Uh, The Brazilians, the Argentines planting their row crops right now, will they have a weather scare or two that that like usually develops that helps move markets higher? Yes, seasonally speaking, we would expect uh, grain futures to gain some traction into the end of the calendar year. So even though the farmer is coming into uh, not such a busy period here and we get into the holidays and get distracted a little bit, we still need to keep the eye on the ball from the standpoint of marketing. Absolutely. And the good thing to watch at this point is uh, because of the uh, somewhat burdensome supply uh, scenario that we know to have weighed on prices up to this point, uh, the silver lining there is that it's installed a high degree of carry in our market. And so we'll look forward out to those uh, uh, bids where we can deliver, say, in the early part of 2019, uh, maybe lock in some prices uh, that, again, uh, offer an incentive to carry that grain. But we do have to look into uh, making that action to hedging uh, that production so we'll keep an eye out for we have a lot regard. of yeah we have a lot of grain stored out there we have to watch the uh, condition of that too i guess don't we absolutely and conditions uh, certainly a topic of uh, concern this year for some especially at the ends of the corn belt as we talked about with all those uh, extra showers we appreciate the chance to visit with you and you appreciate your expertise as well joe thank you thanks so much joe camp with agrivisor here 
For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. Welcome back to the markets, sponsored by the CME Group. I'm Steve Alexander, and for Orion Samuelson, we just heard from Max Armstrong about some of the agricultural markets. There is another agricultural market that seems destined to explode. That is industrial hemp, the non-wacky version of cannabis, which also is expected to explode as more and more states are legalizing cannabis. But for farmers who have been wanting to plant industrial hemp, it has been a tough road to hoe, so to speak, as hemp, because it is a cousin of marijuana, has been classified as a controlled substance, even though it contains virtually none of the wackiness, the THC, that marijuana has. Some states have been experimenting with industrial hemp. Colorado is the nation's leader in industrial hemp. And I spoke to Dwayne Sinning, who's with the State Department of Agriculture, to talk about hemp and the farming of hemp. How many acres do you have under till right now with hemp in Colorado, Dwayne? In Colorado right now, we have about 30,000 acres registered for uh, outdoor production of of industrial hemp and another 4.7 million square feet indoor. And uh, acreage-wise, how does that compare with some of the other big crops in Colorado? So Colorado is well-known for our Palisade peaches and our Rocky Ford melons, uh, and industrial hemp has already exceeded the acres of both of those crops. Uh, it's also bigger than sugar beets here in Colorado. Corn and wheat are the biggest two, and, and it's significantly farther uh, behind uh, in acreage than both of those crops. But it's, you know, it's uh, five years old is all. I don't know that we'll ever replace corn or wheat, but it certainly has uh, made an impact here in the state already. Let's talk about the planting of hemp seed. Is it able to be drilled or planted as a row crop using existing equipment, or is there some other investment necessary? Yeah, for planting purposes, we really haven't seen anybody buying anything new. We've seen some old planters come out uh, of retirement uh, because it's it's pretty that that easy. But really, uh, the current uh, equipment that most farmers have is, have is sufficient for uh, the planting purposes. Because of the diverse uses, it's also uh, planted in, and harvested in diverse ways. If it's grown for seed or grain, largely it is sown like wheat or corn, drilled uh, or planted like corn, uh, six inches apart, five inches apart. Depends on you know what it's in use, but for for grain or fiber, that's usually you know, what we see. If it is grown for some of the essential oil, the CBD material. Then it looks more like a Christmas tree farm. They're spaced out three to four foot apart. They're hand planted. They're not planted from seed. So uh, the planting is really, uh, even the genetics you select really depends on what you're going to harvest it for. Are they planted in uh, irrigated areas or dry land areas or both? Both. But what we do know is that uh, while it takes uh, less water than corn does, we're seeing that it'll take you know one third to one half the moisture that, that most of our corn uh, farmers are seeing. What we do know is that moisture is critical early in the season. So, and for Colorado, that's good. That's the time of the year we have some moisture. So, 
but purely dry land, it can struggle. It's got to have some moisture early in the season. What about uh, weed and pest control? Anything unusual about that with these plants? Well, weed and pest control is an issue for hemp uh, because uh, it is uh, used in so many ways. There aren't a lot of pesticidal products that can be used on it or weed products that it's listed for. Uh, so, you know, in Colorado, there's between twelve and 13,000 uh, products uh, listed as pesticides in the state. Only about 200 of them qualify for use on industrial hemp. So it, it does make that a little more challenging. So that also means planting early, getting the plants established so that the canopy the plant helps control some of the weeds is really critical. How is it harvested? Well, harvest is difficult. Uh, what we what we've saw the first year was uh, that people tried to use some of the same equipment that they were using for uh, corn, uh, and it would gum up. The, the terpenes in the material gum it up, and then they'd keep trying to run, and it'll end up, because it's very strong fibers, it would seize the machines up, or in some cases even catch fire. So uh, harvest is the difficult time. It's a matter of raising it raising the head up enough that you're not taking off any more stems than you have to uh, and that you're really not getting into the fibrous material on, on a piece of equipment that's not used to dealing with it. We are seeing, though, that you know some of the large manufacturing companies, the John Deere's, the Gleason's, are out looking at how to retrofit, uh, make heads for the traditional combines that uh, will harvest the seed and, and flower material. With one plant able to provide more than just one thing, meaning not only the the seed but also the the fiber. Is there a need for two types of harvesting? Well, so there is some uh, equipment out of Europe that actually has two heads: one head high and one head low. A head high to take the grain off the bottom to to cut the fiber and drop it, uh, and and then lay it in the field and to be basically harvested at a later time. Uh, there isn't, hasn't been as much market for the fiber so far, so uh, that's been less of a problem. The real profit has been in the flower head and the seed, uh, and so that's really where the focus has been. We do see some people come back, though, and pick up the fiber and use it for animal bedding. Bale it just Big bales, just like straw, uh, has been probably the most common, or mowed, chopped up pretty fine, and then used as a soil amendment. You mentioned oils and seed. Uh, in descending order, what is most of the hemp crop in Colorado used for? Is number one seed? Yeah, seed and flour are the two. Flour for the essential oils. But for the large farmers, it's really been seed so far. Uh, but, you know, the, the uh, U.S. Congressional Research Committee has identified 25,000 uses for this. So I, I think we're just, you know, you, you kind of, look at the low-hanging fruit, and that, that's probably it right now. Uh, how much of it can be used for biofuels? That'll come out of the grain as well. Um, can it be used for some high-capacity batteries? Graphene high-capacity batteries is already research being done. So I, I don't think we know where we're going to be five years from now or ten years from now. 25,000 <laughs> 25, uses? 25,000 uses is what they have identified. Uh, for a crop that that they hadn't even recognized was a legal crop at the time. So, yeah, it tells you how how far we have yet to go in a crop that's just unfolding. Wow. I suppose it's hard to prognosticate, but I'll I'll ask you anyway. So uh, five years in, we're at 30,000 acres in Colorado, surpassing sugar beets. What do you see in the future? 
Well, this is a place where I always say my crystal ball has been about as broken as it could ever be because I I didn't think we'd get to 30,000 acres anywhere near this quick. I thought, uh, you know, we'd be waiting for processors to scale up and it, it, it'd be a long process. Uh, so my guess is it'll continue to grow. Will it double every year? I doubt it. And where will it plateau out? I think that a lot of that will just depend on how much consumer demand there is. I mean, if I, uh, the one thing I always look at is how much are we importing? And we still, the import of industrial hemp grain continues to increase even while more states are producing seeds. So that's a, a strong indication that we'll continue to see growth. It's just how much growth that'll be. Are farmers in Colorado making money on this, or is it still in the test phase where they are determining whether they can plant and harvest and, and make money on this? Yeah, what, what we hear a lot from farmers is, I am looking for something because I'm just not making anything on corn or wheat or beans. Uh, and I'm and I'm trying to get into it, and those that have gotten into it, tried and found a marketplace, have gotten into it a little bigger. Uh, and, and part of that's the market just isn't saturated yet. So the, the grain farmers are are still doing pretty well. They're they're finding now places that can process that grain, take the hard seed coat off, produce what's called hemp hearts, and that's been pretty widely used. Used in what way? Are they for human use or for livestock use? Yeah, so human use is legal. Animal use is, the thing with animal feed is it has to be an approved ingredient. And currently right now, uh, hemp is going through at the improved ingredient process that it has to be to be listed as an ingredient. So it's not legal, as funny as this sounds, for you to feed it to your cattle while your cattle could eat it. and, and it wouldn't do anything uh, negative to them, but you can't technically feed it to them. Uh, whereas uh, we know that the omega-3 and omega-6 content in this uh, in the seed is higher than many things. So it makes a very good source of nutrition for human use. In granola bars, you can pick it up at uh, m- many of your local and national um, grocery store changes, hemp hearts. Uh, right along next to the flaxseed to sprinkle on your grape nuts or oatmeal in the morning. Yeah, I got a bag of hemp hearts from Canada in my refrigerator right now. So soon you'll be able to buy the American one. I look forward to that. Are there processing plants in Colorado? So we have some uh, we we have some hemp processors right in here uh, in the state uh, that are dehauling and then returning the seed uh, or the hearts uh, to the farmer or. We have some. We have some. Even some national chains that have reached out to look for um, hemp hearts for distribution and repack. But we're seeing that industry strengthen all the time. Are there farmers in Colorado that have given hemp a test spin and decided it's not for them? Yeah, we we uh, we see a lot of times uh, where somebody tries it once uh, and and goes away. Uh, I think the you know the difficulties of harvesting. Sometimes a, a, a promise of greater profit than they're seeing, um, I, I think, have always, always contributed, and will continue to contribute to people trying it to see if it works for them and, and not. I would imagine that you and your colleagues and farmers in Colorado are paying attention to the new farm bill and what is in that uh, regarding hemp. We have watched it closely, and the new farm bill uh, really does help um, move this industrial hemp from a questionable whether it's a drug or it's an agricultural product and really shows that uh, 
Congress's intent to turn this into an agricultural product. It moves it from uh, the DEA to the USDA. It uh, allows for crop insurance. It allows for universities to start doing more research on it. allows for banking. So there's any number of things that the Farm Bill, the proposed language in the Farm Bill, really does help uh, move this to an agricultural crop. And crop insurance is, is one of those big ones, as well as being able to grow your other crops in, in programs where there's farm subsidies. Dwayne Sinning, the Division Director for the Colorado Department of Agriculture's Division of Plant Industries. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Eh, who knows? Maybe someday hemp futures will be traded at the Chicago Board of Trade. Well, until then, let's see how things did this week. The things that we do trade, like December corn, it closed at 371 a bushel for the week, up 0.95%. Well, let's call it 1%. What do you say? January beans were at 886 on Friday, up 3.5% for the week. December wheat closed at 508 and a quarter on Friday, and up about three quarters of a percent for the week. December live cattle at 117.07, down a nickel from Thursday. Thursday for Friday's close and for the week December live cattle were down 1.1%. November feeder cattle for the week down 1.5% closing at 152.50 on Friday. December lean hogs were down 7 cents on Friday at $58.12.5 and for the week were up 0.35%. Crude oil was downhill all week, down 6.5% for the week, closing at 63.20 on Friday. Brent crude was down 6% for the week, closing at 72.92, gaining about 3 cents on the trading day. Well, that wraps up another week of The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. For Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong, I'm Steve Alexander. <laughs>